Chapter 22. The Second Portage. Trouble with Pedro developed at the outset of the second portage, when I insisted that he climbed down from the bow of the canoe, where he had perched himself. I carefully explained why he could not ride there, that the boat was too frail to stand his weight. But this, of course, did not matter to Pedro. He made a few angry and caustic remarks about gringos who rode on equipment carts, while better men walked. All right, I said, we'll all walk. He stamped on ahead of his oxen, and we fell in behind the enveloping cloud of dust, listening to Jose's incessant chatter. He soon began to talk about guns. Rifles, said Jose, are of little use in shooting small game, but a shotgun with many bullets, that is a gun that gives a man a chance. There was food for thought in this chance remark. And a pistol, Jose? I queried. Oh, with a pistol such as yours, but they are worthless. One has to be very, very close to a man to kill him. And as for game, that, of course, is impossible. Oh, Ginger said, and continued in English. Do you hear it, too? A little jubilant, it seems to me, to be setting off on a long journey through bad country with only a couple of pop-guns to protect them. It might be a good idea to impress those fellows. The road led for a distance along the lagoon, and as we came out on the open shore, I noticed a flock of water-birds nearby. Jose, I asked, could you hit one of those birds with a rifle? He smiled pityingly at my naivete. No, he replied, impossible. It was an easy shot, since the birds were all bunched together, and I dropped two. Then a large, slow-flying crane, startled by the firing, sailed overhead. I took careful aim at its neck, made a direct hit, and the great bird crashed to earth a short distance from us. The oxen snorted and started to run. When we had them under control, Pedro came running back to us. The men exchanged glances. She, too, blurted Pedro, pointing to Ginger. She was a much better shot, I assured him. Her feats of marksmanship were legendary. Again the men looked at one another, but, protested Pedro, you shot twice without reloading. Apparently neither man had ever heard of an automatic pistol, so I told them that both our guns would fire as many shots as we wished them to. Pedro looked at me through narrowed eyes, turned on his heel, and stalked ahead to rejoin his oxen. Ginger flashed me a muddy smile and assured me that our exhibition had probably settled any further doubts about guns. I wasn't so sure. Pedro had a good opinion of himself, and would try to outsmart us yet, if he got the chance. I urged Ginger to keep her distance from their machetes, for a native can wield one with uncanny speed and precision, and to keep her gun swung low and her eyes open. As we walked along in the dust behind the carts, we went over every possible trick that the men might try, 
working out a counter-offensive to each situation until we had covered all the possibilities that occurred to us. Throughout the long, hot afternoon, the deeply rutted trail meandered through low, dense scrub, around tangled thorn thickets, and across flats of thick, razor-edged buffalo grass. But as roads go in this country, it was fairly good. Towering stands of flower-tipped cacti and flowering trees added an occasional color note to the otherwise unattractive landscape. But nothing else broke the monotony of the journey as we plodded on, hour after hour. The sun grew low and sank below the horizon. It became more difficult to avoid the thorns and spiked vegetation, for the moon would not rise until late. Still nothing was said by either Pedro or Jose about finding a place to rest. About eight o'clock, Pedro called a halt, but he only wanted to trade places with Jose. Then, instead of walking at the head of his team, he dropped behind to walk with us. I was decidedly suspicious of this maneuver, for it was too dark to detect a nip in the bud, to detect and nip in the bud any sudden move he might make. Ginger suggested that we walk ahead of the carts for a while, so we cut round them, keeping just far enough in advance of the cart to keep an eye on Jose. We were desperately hungry and tired, but Pedro was calling the turn, and we could continue if he could. At nine o'clock the road emerged on a grass-covered plain, where Jose called to us to stop. It was time to eat. The men had brought little food and no water. Our four gallons all that our canteens would hold, had to last us until we reached the lagoon, and perhaps for a time after that. The men sat down and munched their tortillas and fish without enthusiasm, eyeing our food covetously, although we were eating the same fare. "'Water!' Pedro demanded peremptorily. I handed him one of our canteens, and he drank from it greedily. Both camps ate in silence." When the brief meal was finished, the march was resumed. Three more hours we stumbled along in the darkness until Pedro called another halt at midnight. This time we were to rest while the tired oxen were turned loose to graze. The moon was due to rise shortly, and we would continue on by its light. The men spread out some rags and lay down. Pedro insisted that we, too, sleep for a while. We spread out our canvas on the opposite side of the cart, but in a position from which we could keep a watchful eye on our fellow travelers. Needless to say, we had no intention of sleeping, but even rest was impossible. Our clothes felt as if they were full of hot needles, although an examination of our arms and shoulders disclosed nothing. Later, when the moon rose and we could see by its light, we found that our bodies and clothes were alive with pinolillos. While the cartmen pretended to sleep, we spent the time beating our clothes and trying to pick off the ticks. It was soon apparent that unless we could reach water and scrub them off before they had a chance to dig in, we would be covered with nasty sores that would take a month or more to heal. I routed out Pedro and Jose. Pedro was surly and ill-tempered. The oxen were nowhere in sight, 
but we soon found their tracks going back down the trail. Pedres suddenly became all animation. He would go and get them, he announced, and started off at a jog trot. I said to Ginger in English, There's something funny here. Pedro's too anxious to get those oxen, and I'm going to follow him. Stay here and watch Jose, and stay within shooting distance. If he gets funny, make him say uncle. I followed Pedro, making no noise and keeping well concealed. A half mile down the trail I caught up with him. The oxen were just ahead, and as he came up to them he threw his arms in the air and gave a low hiss, which is the signal for oxen to gee up. Gee up. Since the beasts were being driven homeward, they responded with a will. Furious at this evidence of his duplicity, I yelled, If you don't catch those oxen, I'll blow your ears off. He started ducking for the brush, but I cut off his retreat. He wilted at sight of the gun and started off to circle the oxen and turn them back towards the carts. With the luger right behind him on the return trip, Pedro drove the oxen, and I drove Pedro. Once more we walked behind the carts, our clothing chafing, the pinolillos, which had already dug into our skins until the itching almost drove us crazy. But there was nothing we could do about it. Pedro stopped the oxen and began to spank his clothes with a small switch. Jose also attempted to free himself of the ticks. From here on there are many pinolillos, he said. I laughed. The threat of encountering more of the pests didn't mean much, since we were already completely covered with them. At three a.m., Pedro called another halt. He quieted the oxen and came back to us. We have arrived, he announced. In answer to my query about just where we had arrived, he blandly replied, at our destination. Our destination is Aguapocas, Ginger interrupted. Something had been planned for the small grassy clearing that he had chosen for his destination, and we knew it. His own explanation that from here on he did not know the way was, of course, nonsense. I think we'd better keep on traveling, Pedro, I said slowly and with emphasis. He was silent for a moment and then began talking with Jose in their native tongue. His tone was nasty and I watched him carefully. Pedro's machete arm was hanging close by his side. The moonlight gleamed on the sharp blade. Without a second's warning, the blade flashed up and out directly at my head, I ducked and lashed out with my gun. The luger jumped and spat flame as it thudded against Pedro's head. I was as much surprised at its accidental discharge as he was. He dropped to the ground moaning, thoroughly convinced that he had been shot through the head. The leading oxen started off on a wild stampede through the clearing into the jungle. Ginger had stepped back and was covering Jose. Is Pedro dead? she asked in a shaky voice. No, such luck. Just scared, I answered. When I slapped him with the gun, the pressure of my hand and the jar pulled the trigger. He thinks he's dead, though. Come on there, I said to Pedro. Get up. I slapped him on the rear with his machete and walked back to where I could cover both men. I'll have your machete, too, Jose. Pedro slowly got to his feet, feeling his head to see if it were still there. It was. Not even the skin had been broken. With both men walking ahead of us, we ran down the oxen, disentangling them from the growth where they had sought refuge. Jose was tractable and agreed to drive his team without further difficulty, but Pedro flatly refused. You do not understand them, and I will not drive, he said sullenly. All right, my friend, you walk ten feet ahead of me. If you walk faster than that, I'll shoot. After tossing his machete into the cockpit of the canoe and relieving him of the picadura, 
a stick with a pointed bit of metal on the end, shaped like an arrowhead, used for guiding and prodding the oxen, I gave the team the signal to move on. The technique of driving an ox team lies in the driver's knowledge of what to do with the picadura. This was what Pedro hoped we did not understand. The method of driving them differs slightly throughout the country, but it essentially concerns the use of the goad. To start the team, the stick is raised over their heads, with the barb pointing towards the rear. Experience has taught them that if they do not start moving immediately, their hindquarters will feel the barb. To stop them, the stick is wrapped against the yoke, the implication being that the wrapping will be transferred almost instantly to their heads. To make a sharp turn, the stick is held above the head of the off ox. This encourages him to hurry up and walk round his partner. At night, when it is too dark for the ox to see, the prod is placed on his horns, its points menacing his rear, and he hurries ahead and makes the turn. The only oral sound used is a long, drawn-out hiss, which generally has to be accompanied by a sharp jab from the goad before it is taken seriously. Comprehension of these few simple directions, plus the fact that from calfhood the ox is accustomed to having his horns tied to those of his partner, constitutes his entire fund of knowledge. The old adage, as dumb as an ox, is quite true. Pedro stamped on ahead, time after time, trying to lead us astray through the heavy brush. Only a certain kind of patience that one learns to use in dealing with childish people saved him from the beating that he richly deserved. This, and perhaps a sort of macabre humor about the situation that persisted in spite of the pinolillos, the weariness, and the danger. The angry indio balked in his designs against our goods and persons, stalking ahead in the throes of a tantrum that a spoiled child might envy. The wheedling voice of Jose, now all sweetness and amiability, warning Ginger of every little obstacle on the trail as he preceded ten paces in advance of her gun trained on his spine. I could hear him with the gallantry of a Sir Walter Raleigh. Cuidado, senora, here is a thorn bush. Then again, be careful, senora, to miss this stone, just a little to the right. It was hard to determine whether his concern was for her or for himself, in case she should stumble and shoot him inadvertently. Overhead, a pale moon threw weird shadows across the path and dappled the backs of the tired, straining oxen. Our arms and our legs and arms had long since become automatons that moved without any effort of will. The excitement of dealing with these graceless scoundrels intent on murder, theft, or worse had carried us, for the moment, beyond the state where fatigue imposes limitations. This was a situation that would have intrigued writers of the old-fashioned school of melodrama, I thought, as we went along. The setting was perfect, and it had everything, including the lady and the double-dyed villain. Its principal victims to date, however, were the poor oxen. It was a shame that they had to be deprived of their proper rest, food, and water to make a Roman holiday for Pedro. However, it was unwise to stop even long enough to let them graze on the dew-soaked grass, which would have helped their parched throats, 
and there was no time to look for water holes. They were so tired that only continual prodding kept them moving at all, for they had been on the march fourteen hours. Then I heard Ginger speaking sharply to Jose. I'm sorry, but you're not going to leave the trail for anything. But, Senora, I tell you I must, I must, came Jose's answer in a rising wail. Further pleas and promises of good behavior brought a reiterated refusal. What's going on back there? I called back and stopped the team. Pedro, ahead, seized the interruption to fall on his knees and groan. Jose wants to make a little detour, Ginger called back in a voice muffled with laughter. I called to Jose. Come on up here. I thought you were too damned mean to be modest. Pedro was hauled out of the grass, protesting, and the pair of them marched to one side of the trail. When we returned, Ginger said to Pedro, who had sworn that he would rather die than walk further, Are you the man who can make the five-day cart trip to Huchitan? I don't believe it, for that man would be ashamed to let a woman out-travel him after only fourteen hours of walking. Without a word, Pedro found his legs and started ahead. I called him back and lined up the pair of them. Listen carefully, my friends, for I have something to tell you. You have suddenly become a great nuisance to us, and for the cost of only two bullets we can relieve ourselves of the difficulty and save for ourselves the water you are drinking. We are familiar with the handling of oxen in this country. Would it not be easier for us to put you out of the way and continue on alone? We have every reason to do this, for you have tried to kill me and take the canoe and our things for yourselves. Surely no one would blame us, and we are not doing you a favor in taking... Are we not doing you a favor in taking you with us? Now listen, this is your last chance. We are going to Aguas Pocas, whether you aid us or not. If you help us, we will reward you, and heaven help you if you don't. Pedro then protested that he did not know the way. Jose thought it was more to the east. No matter, I said, we shall follow the open country until daylight. On and on we followed the exhausted oxen, winding in and out among the heavy growth in an effort to keep in the clearings. It seemed that daylight would never come. Finally, we could go no further, for we were completely hemmed in by the jungle. I called a halt and unhitched the tired beasts. Pedro was prevented just in time from turning them loose. Tie them to the cart, I ordered, grumbling. He obeyed. The oxen apparently safely tied, and Pedro and Jose stretched out within range of our eyes. We lay down for a brief respite. Within a few minutes, Ginger nudged me. Pedro was wriggling towards the oxen. He had tied them so loosely that it was only the work of a second before the freed animals started off, making tracks for home and water. My patience exhausted, I raised the luger, with every intention of killing him. Ginger grabbed my arm, and Jose ran up and pleaded, "'Please, senor, I will bring back the oxen.' In spite of Ginger's doubts, I let him go alone, for I wonder he was for a wonder he was to be trusted, and returned shortly with the beasts. This time they were securely tied under my supervision. The two men returned to their ragged blankets, and we climbed on the equipment cart to escape the pinolillos. The ticks were digging in, and the itching was almost unbearable. Every time I looked at the Indian, eyeing me from his dirty blanket, I had to stifle the almost irresistible impulse to kill him, for he was as venomous as any reptile. Our arms ached from the constant strain of holding the guns trained on the men.
I wondered dully why we didn't use them once and for all and put them away in our holsters and give our arms a rest. Ginger and I went over our plans once again for dealing with the situation while the east paled and the sun came over the mountains. After sunrise we could see a dense haze to the east, and that meant water. Since there was little use in further waiting, Ginger got out some food, and I took part of it, together with the canteen the men had used to drink from, and went down and wakened them. After the meal, Jose and I hitched up the oxen and skirted the growth until we found an opening in the iron wall through which the carts could pass. Pedro was put to breaking trail in front. I was not at all sure that he had learnt anything by the events of the last eighteen hours, but Jose was thoroughly cowed. He had been under the strain of marching all night in front of a woman with a gun. The heat was terrific. Not a breath of wind stirred. Our bodies glistened with sweat. The pinolillos dug in with increased energy until it seemed as though we were bathed in fire. On and on we went, the sun pounding our heads with a molten club. From time to time Pedro complained that we were killing his oxen by traveling through the heat of the day. Then Ginger would call to him and ask sweetly if he was worrying about poor Pedro or the Presidente's oxen. This always shut him up for a few minutes, seldom longer. It was hard on the poor beasts, and we hated to do it, but the idea of spending another night in the jungle with Pedro was nothing to look forward to. Besides, we had to ha have water and lots of it. In addition to the pinolillos, as if they were not enough, we were covered with an inch-thick deposit of sweat and dust. To lie and float in cool water with the vagabunda riding nearby, that would be heaven. So we kept on, always in the direction of the beckoning haze. One thing that Jose and I discovered while cutting a path through the brush was that the ticks were only to be found in the shade. To avoid them, we made many detours in the sun. Jose was overjoyed to be trusted to the extent of having his machete returned to him, and he cut the brush when necessary with a good will. A native deprived of his machete is a man without honor, feels as naked um, without it as a white man might feel stripped of his clothes, and turned loose on some busy metropolitan street. Ginger always kept Pedro well covered while we were away, and never failed to praise Jose's magnificent courage and stamina when we returned to the carts. Towards sundown, the oxen pricked up their ears and took a new lease on life. A light breeze brought us the smell of fresh of water. To the left, the growth became thicker and greener, even Pedro ceased complaining, and for the first time since he had been put to breaking trail, picked out the best route. He announced as though it were due to his efforts, and as if he had completed a hard task uncomplainingly, and was now about to receive a just reward. Senor, we have arrived. This is Aguas Pocas. May I go ahead and see if I can find a trail to the water? I nodded. But of course, I shall need my machete, he added. Ah, oh, Pedro, I said, we're too tired for any monkey business. If the growth is so thick that you need a machete, how are we going to get the cart through? The carts through? Didn't you say you were going to look for a trail? Run along, and remember, we're not in the mood for one of your little surprises. Pedro started off, showing his second burst of speed on the trip. As we trudged wearily along, Ginger called to me, Aren't you taking a long chance, Dan? 
He may have something up his sleeve. I don't think so, I replied. Maybe he's been converted. Outside of going after the oxen, this is the first initiative he's shown on the trip. Perhaps he sees the error of his ways. It's about time to dish out a few fish hooks. How are you coming along back there? Pretty good, she replied, except that my arm aches from holding the gun on Jose. And don't forget the other time that Pedro got ambitious. I marveled at her endurance. My own arms ached from the weight of the heavy luger and the continual use of the goad. My legs ached from the weight of the heavy gun belt and from the ceaseless tramp, tramp, one foot after the other, through grass and brush, over sticks and logs, hour after hour. Vines and creepers held our feet in a vice-like grip, while thorny branches scratched every exposed inch of our bodies. And in addition to the heat, lack of sleep, pinolillos, and scanty rations of food and water, there was the nervous strain of watching and waiting. Yet Ginger had managed somehow, in spite of her slight physique, to withstand these things for thirty hours. We went on for another mile or two without a sign of Pedro. I kept a sharp lookout and was careful not to get too close to any dense growth. Since he was unarmed, there was little he could do, but thirty hours of Pedro had convinced us that there was little he wouldn't try. He had a genius for mischief and a profound belief in his own capacity that no amount of failure could diminish. Then we heard a shout, and he came running back, all smiles, to inform us that he had found an easy trail down to the water. Said Pedro, with his most ingratiating voice, Senor, your long journey is over. But something in the quality of his tone made us feel that Pedro had a longer journey in mind than Aguas Pocas. He insisted politely that Ginger and I should precede the carts, and that he and Jose should follow. Perhaps you're right this time, Pedro. Perhaps the senora and I will take your advice and go on ahead. Possibly, who knows, he suggested, we may find something to shoot at. We knew that once away from the noise of the carts, our hearing would be keener. So we started off, keeping carefully to the trail Pedro had found. Ginger examined the growth to the left and I to the right. We were following an old cart road, a half mile ahead of the carts, a slight movement in the brush sent the luger jumping in my hand. Ginger fired at a similar disturbance on her side of the trail. As the sound of the guns died away, a frantic crashing through the brush indicated that something, or someone, was leaving in a hurry. Within a few minutes we came out upon a small sand beach, where the mirror-like expanse of Aguas Pocas spread out before us. We arrived in time to see a dugout manned by Indians disappear round a bend in the shoreline. I sent up a geyser of water close beside them. Don't you think we'd better go back and assure Pedro that the way is clear? Sort of put his mind at ease? asked Ginger. Just then we heard the voices of the men urging the spent oxen forward. We stepped back and waited until Pedro came into view. His face wore the look of a man who, through sheer perseverance, has at last triumphed over seemingly insurmountable circumstances. A gay, relaxed, at peace with the world expression. We almost hated to disturb his colossal satisfaction. When he was almost abreast of us, I hailed him. Come on, Pedro, everything's fine. Come right down to the water, I commanded. The oxen needed no inducements, but plunged into the brackish water and began to drink. Pedro and Jose star stared, 
But we had no further time to waste on Pedro, and while he was still in his trance, we hurriedly slid the canoe into the water and loaded the equipment into it. Then I called to Jose, who waded out to the canoe, closely followed by Pedro, to come and get the six fish hooks which I held out to him. Jose beamed his thanks, but Pedro had the audacity to whine over his failure to receive a parting gift. No fish hooks, he moaned, and we are hungry, and we want hot coffee and some food. We need water and provisions for the long trip home. That's just too bad, I returned. You drank up all of one canteen on the way down. We had only one gallon left for ourselves, but I wouldn't deny even a rattlesnake a drink of water. Here, I handed him, in, handed him the canteen, and together they finished the last of our fresh water. Then Ginger decided that we might as well do a good job of it, so she gave them the balance of the food that Teresa had prepared. We were still too near shore for the canoe to float with our weight in it, and we pushed off further before I stuck Pedro's machete in the mud and called goodbye to Jose. We suspected he was rather the victim of the stronger and more aggressive Pedro's machinations than of his own evil impulses.